Hello, everybody, and welcome to Chapter 26, The New Balance of Power, 1850 to 1900. So this is just talking about um, imperialism and the different innovations um, that really help to push or further imperialism. I know this is coming late, so if you've already done it, awesome. If you have not, um, this is Sections 1 through 4. And for some whatever reason, when I originally recorded um, this episode... Uh, one through four did not record or did not upload correctly. So I'm just going to go briefly over this. So Commodore Matthew Perry is a naval admiral um, for the United States. And he is one that is going to be basically recognized for opening Japan to the West, um, not by niceties or pleasantries, but rather by force and by threats. Um, He basically tells Japan, if you don't open in a year, if we come back in a year and you're not open, then we're just going to take it by force. So he basically forces um, to open them. So section one, railroads. We have 390,000 miles of railroads over the world at this point. And railroads were just networks of iron rails, which steam locomotives pulled long trains. So the locomotive is the very front of the train. That's the that's where the engine is. That's where it's pulling. That's where you put the coal. And that's how the driving force. The train itself are the carts that are pulled by the locomotive. So the effects of the railroads on businesses is that it accelerated the economic growth of urban markets and urban ports. And for the environment, it did transform the rural areas from being very um, low population and sparsely um, inhabited to being blowing up overnight, basically. So new cities, um, new shopping opportunities, increased economic. But with these situations uh, arising, we also have the promotion of deforestation um, and of just increased human waste um, being an issue. Section 2, steamships and telegraph cables. So steamships, remember, are run by the steam engine, um, coal-powered, very fast, very efficient for many of the new nations. But one new addition to the original steamship was the enlarging of the hull. The hull is what you um, carry or transport things in. It's the bottom of the ship. Um, So it increased from 200 tons to 7,500 tons. So originally you could only carry 200 tons of product, but after the redesign, you can now carry up to 7,500 tons of product by 1900. Propellers, um, they replaced the paddle and it was used to move the ship or propel it and it increased speed and it increased the maneuverability of the ship. And engines, of course, um, newly advanced engines are also just going to make the steamship go faster. It's going to be more efficient. It's going to be less use of coal and more use of other um, resources. Coal stations increased in size and number and would lead to the need of other stations like docking stations and um, fueling stations globally, the need for that. The Suez Canal was created and this was in 1869 and it was in Egypt and it's on the Suez. It is just the creation of a canal to shorten the distance between Asia and Europe. So now they can just cut through Egypt and get to Asia instead of going around or going around Africa. Imports and exports were now put on a tight schedule. You can only import, export things at specific times. You had to um, make appointments. You had to be very rigid. So we're now seeing um, conformity in how you import, export. You just can't come and import whenever you want. You have a specific time you need to come. Submarine telegraph cables were just insulated copper cables laid along the bottoms 
of oceans or seas for communication. So one example is the um, submarine telegraph that connected England and France through the English Channel. So underground cables that allow them to communicate with each other. Section, th- sorry, section three, the steel and chemical industries. So why was steel so important? There's four reasons. It's very cheap to make. It's very versatile. It's strong. And it's easy to, um, to work with. Meaning like you could only make certain things with iron. Now you can make anything. Um, it's very malleable. Um, it's a really great steel for new, innovate, new innovations and opportunities to be created. Henry Bessemer is a scientist who discovered that when you force air through molten iron that this new metal of steel is formed it's stronger it can be molded and shaped easier Um, it's just a better and more dominant product than iron the chemical industry had many effects um, on india it ruined indigo plantations and it helped to accelerate the mining industry and the railroads the use of railroads and it was really increased the weapon capabilities of military so now you have iron and you can make totally new types of weapons better more efficient stronger um, guns and things like that alfred noble um, is a scientist who turned nitroglycerin solid so originally nitroglycerin is in liquid form but noble takes it and turns it solid and is chief in helping to create dynamite um and why did germany do so well in the industrial chemistry field for two reasons one it had a very advanced engineering and scientific um, universities and um, schools as well as the researchers and the scientists cooperating um, frequently with industry so it was a good balance and a good relationship between the industry the business side and the science side working together section four electricity why is electricity so important it's important because it changes every aspect of life it changes um, how we eat how we cook how we live how we just function day to day so electricity is a form of energy used in telegraphy from the 1840s on Um, And it would eventually um, be used for lightning, uh, for lighting, for motors and the railroad. Um, Michael Faraday is a scientist um, and inventor. And in 1831, he discovered how to induce an electric current into wire. And this ability will allow Thomas Edison and Tesla and all these later scientists to come along and be able to create the light bulb or create the battery or create AC or DC. AC or um, DC powered um, things. So Thomas Edison is an American inventor. He's best known for his light bulb. Um, He's also known for recordings as well as um, video motion pictures. So the video camera of motion pictures, movies, um, that is credited to Edison. And lastly, effects on peoples and cities. Um, It really increased productivity. It improved worker safety and it contributed a negative is it contributed to air pollution um so that is section one through four and then the rest is covered in the following podcast so i'm sorry guys that i messed it up earlier but here's the corrected version thanks
Okay, let's go ahead and move right along. This section is going to include sections five through eight. So section five, world trade and finance. So remember the steamship is a very amazing invention connecting the world faster, efficient. Well, due to that efficiency, um, steamships increased world trade because of its speed and because of how fast and how efficient and how wonderful this new invention was, we see intensified trade or very high demand for trade, increased trade, faster trade. In Austria, a terrible economic issue happened. Um, in 1873, the bank collapsed, and this triggered a global depression. So one of the first global depressions, um, really kind of putting everybody on edge. And this would go ahead and set the stage for more intensified imperialism and more intensified nationalism and just tensions um, amongst different nations. So Germany and the U.S. justified new policies on imperialism um, because they believed that it was in the benefit of the nation. And remember, everybody is rising nationalism, has nationalistic feelings. So the actions of the U.S. and Germany creating new policies, doing new reforms, really aligned them to a road to imperialism. Britain's actions with finance... Um, they financed many projects, not only in England, but outside of England, specifically outside of Europe. So going out into the colonies and financing new projects and new opportunities. Section six, sorry, section six, population and migrations. In 1850, we had about 265 million people in the, in generally in the world. And then by 1914, we see um, 468 million, which is a 203 million increase within about 64 years, a 203 million increase. That's huge. Very rapid population growth. So why did people move during this period? For several reasons and several different um, events. One is the Irish potato famine. Um, the pogroms, the Russian pogroms, which were the persecution of Jews in Russia. Um, and of course, just poverty that was going on in Europe. We see an increase of migration to the United States and West. And how did people transport themselves to these areas? Well, by steamship or by railroad. So those are your two ways of transportation. The death rate at this time did drop because pop populations in Europe decreased. So we see the death rate in Europe decline and we see an increase in movement to the United States. So food and prep. Well, the Irish potato was very prevalent at the beginning of the 19th century, but we see due to the potato famine that we needed to figure out ways to have food and prepare food um, that could benefit and really help out for future incidents or future um uh, future events that may be harmful. So canning and refrigeration um, became abundant and became needed. So canning, the process of canning was invented and the process of refrigeration was invented or predecessor to refrigeration, not like refrigeration as we think today. Um, we also see the invention of fertilizers, which allowed for larger crops, higher yields, um, healthier plants. And of course, large migrations of Asian populations, um, specifically to the United States, and this is due to the gold rush um, and the resettling of Western U.S. 
Check section, I don't know why I'm saying section, section seven, urbanization and the urban environment. So at this time, 80% of the population of the world's population were urban. Um, in New York, we have between 1800 and 1900, an increase of 3.3 million. So within a hundred years, we have a 3.3 million population increase. People moving from the country to the city. That's crazy. But this is due to industrialization. Transportation was, of course, railroads. Um, they increased transportation and expansion. Um, cities, some positive and some negatives. Well, of course, um, first places of innovation. Um, and also some negatives were sanitation, water contamination, um, just deplorable living conditions. But it also was a place for increased economics, increased prosperity, depending on who you were. Um, and then we had different zones. We had three different zones, industrial, commercial, residential, um, and they were all occupied by different classes. So your industrial class, your industrial zone was your work where you worked and usually um, the very poor worked or lived near the industrial zone. Then you had your commercial zone. This is where you had all your shops. This is where the products would be sent. So a lot, you know, be around department stores or things like that. And this is where your middle class would probably live in your commercial areas. And then, of course, you had your residential areas. Now, you did have middle class live in that area, too. But the residential was really outside of the city. It was away from everything, all the poverty and all the... Um, unsanitary condition so it was a really place for the wealthy section eight middle class women's separate sphere so the victorian era or the victorian age was really a period defined by racism sexism and class discrimination um so this is the reign of queen victoria 1837 to 1901 um it's classified and usually described as having very rigid moral standards there were definitive set roles for men and women and children. Um, there were ways in which you conducted yourself, social rules, social cues that you had to follow. It's very, very strict, very, very uptight. Um, very similar to the Puritan um, period in the United States, but the Victorian age really got us into the 20th century. So the separate sphere um, is just men versus women. It's men's environments and women's environments um they had separate roles so men lived outside the home so their sphere was outside the home work business um things like that politics the separate sphere women's sphere or environment was inside the home um doing womanly things child rearing cooking cleaning domestic items they may do charities go outside the home and do charities but it's still classified very much as women um, a lady is a woman who very much um, follows all the standards and all the social expectations that are set for her is very pure is very austere is very um i don't want to say rigid or um What's the word? Very proper. Prim and proper would be someone who's a lady. Someone who um, follows all the rules, um, sets the standard, follows the standard, and is someone to look up to. Has very good morals. Is virginal. You know, is not a, not a, um, not tainted by society. You know. So we did at this time see new inventions for the home, um, modern plumbing, electricity, um, central heating, um of the houses 
So all these new inventions were going to be very helpful in the home because it's going to make life easier um, for women because remember women are the ones that are in the home. It's going to make life easier. It's going to make these tasks easier. So remember new inventions, modern plumbing, central heating, electricity. But you have to remember at this time, even though these things were available, who were they available to? The extremely wealthy. Not everybody had them. You'd go into the 1940s, 1950s with some people not even having electricity still. Yeah, it's something that is not universally used. So we do have some learned professions. So learned professions are things that women had to receive an education for um, or be, you know, learn. So that is like seam, being a seamstress, artist, music, um, stores, clerks, things like that. Education wise, only few women received an education outside of, um, secondary school and some didn't even go into like the high school levels. Um, but the ones that did go to college and university were few and far between. Most women were nurses, Um, secretaries, teachers, those were the professions that they learned. So high technology included vacuums and the washing machine. Oh my god, the washing machine. Yeah. So you can go ahead and skip Mary Murphy. Um, Emmeline Pankhurst is a suffragette. A suffragette is an individual who is fighting for women's rights, specifically women's rights to vote. Um, There's many. You have Emmeline Pankhurst. You have um, her daughter, um, you have Alice Paul, um, Susan B. Anthony, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, all these different women who are part of these movements. But in England, Emmeline Pankhurst was the leader for the women. Um, moving on to section nine, working class women. Um, starting at 10 years old, um, you would work for about 16 hours. A day for six and a half days. So you'd have 16 hour days and you'd work six and a half days. So you'd have half the day on the Sunday off. Um, some of the women, some of the jobs, um, more popular jobs were domestic servants. Um, factory women worked in textiles um, or clothing. Um, and married women were expected to stay home. We do see high levels of sexual abuse um, specifically in the domestic servants. And Karl Marx commented on this, commented on the exploitation of young women. Um, But you also had sexual abuse in the factory systems as well. Male versus female jobs. Um, Women's jobs were more textile-based. Men's were more industrial-based. And the women's jobs paid less, um, significantly less. Um, Poor orphans and single women would be those that worked in the factories or as domestic servants. Section 10, Marx and Socialism. Socialism is a political ideology that originated in Europe in the 1830s and it really was advocation for workers' rights. Um, Advocation for better work conditions, better pay, better hours, um, just to protect the worker. Socialism is all about protecting the majority of the people so it's good for the majority what's good for all of us together um labor unions were also invented and these were just organizations um of workers consisting of workers to defend the interest of workers so these are the ones that fought for better hours fought for better working conditions better pay things like that 
Karl Marx is a German journalist and philosopher. He is the founder of Marxist, Marxism, um, or the Marxist branch of socialism. And his friend and colleague Friedrich, or Friedrich Engels was another socialist, and he helped Marx to combine their ideas um, and create what would be communism and socialism. Karl Marx is the Communist Manifesto. So the bourgeoisie are your property owners, and the proliterate are the workers. So socialism and communism is really the battle between the bourgeoisie and the proliterate. And this is this battle equals class struggle. So Marxism, um, communism is all about class struggle, this fight between the haves and the have-nots, basically. So let's do some math. It's not hard math, but value of a product. So a wooden table costs $10 to purchase. The wage of the worker is $3 per table. So equals $7, right? Left. That's how much left. So what is the $7 value called? So it costs $10 to make. $3 goes towards the worker. $7 is left. What is the $7 called? It's the surplus value. It's the difference between the wage and the value of the, of the um, product. So if the value of it's $10 but the wage is $3 to make, then the surplus value is seven. So really it's seven, that's how much you're gonna get. So what will happen to the workers? Well, based on socialism and Marxism is that workers under this system, if the system continues, will just grow and become more impoverished. But Marx and Engels had three things that they believed would happen. So the worker would eventually cause revolution, overthrow the bourgeoisie, and establish a communist society. So they believe that they would do these all on their own. So you can go ahead and skip, summarize, cotton clothing, and then the reading of Marx and Engels. Um, we do come to the idea of scientific socialism, and this is an intellectual framework that discusses the dissatisfaction with raw industrial complex and just how corrupt and how unequal lack of equality lack of opportunity there is um, for individuals section 12 i mean sorry section 11 labor movements so at this time, we are seeing the creation of the progressive era, a lot of reform, a lot of social reform. So friendly societies were created, and most of these, at this period, most of these institutions are being developed or created or founded by very wealthy individuals or patrons. So friendly societies were for mutual assistance in times of need. So think of unemployment, think of welfare. This is basically like the predecessor. We do have anti-combination laws um, in Britain. These were invented to make it illegal to strike. So in 1850, the British abolished this anti-combination laws and said that it was legal. People could strike if things were not correct. But prior, it was the laws that supported the owner and really went against the worker and against striking. 
Male suffrage is the right to vote for all men. It didn't matter your your race, your gender, your sex, your well, sexuality. I'm not gonna even get on that. But race, your gen or not, not your gender. Sorry, I'm going all the way back. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your social class, and it doesn't matter your um, position in 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 life, whatever your job was. Gender, yes, it still did matter. Sorry, I got that confused. Not confused, but I was just thinking of a lot of different things. Sorry, but no, it's for all men. It doesn't matter your station. It doesn't matter. Technically, it doesn't matter your race, but it's for all men. So many workers equal power. So basically, the idea is that we need to have a strong coalition of workers that will work together. And when we band together and when we unify, we have more power. Um, We can create unions. And then, of course, we have the Social Democratic Party of Germany. It's the first organized social communist-esque party um, in Europe. And the Reichstag added more socialist seats or um, communist seats to their parliamentary system. And why not revolt for reforms? Well, the socialists and the communists and the Marxists of Germany really thought that it was better to seize power through politics than through rebellion so that's what they worked on and of course we see the rise in anarchists this is the anarchist movement era so if you're interested in anything that's like anti-government um really go and research the um anarchist period in the world which is around the end of the 1800s early 1900s um late 19th century early 20th century it's really interesting Um, But it's revolutionaries who wanted to abolish all private property and government. And they usually used violence, bombings, um, murders, things like that, or assassinations. Section 12, language and national identity before 1871. So nationalism, underline this, highlight this, whatever. Um, This is one of the reasons of World War I. So we're seeing we're heading to World War I. We have imperialism, we have nationalism. We're going to keep going on to the other ones, but these are our next two. So nationalism, political ideology that stressed people's memberships to a nation. Um, patriotism, like extreme patriotism. Common language and religions were a tool to unify um, and create unity or national unity. So if you think about it, the national religion of the United States um, is Christianity National religion of many other countries is Christianity. National religion of Saudi Arabia is Islam. That's basically what they're saying. So the Irish and English were pretty much unified um, on everything else, but they were divided on religion. Remember, England is Protestant and parts of Ireland are Catholic. Liberalism had three goals. Liberalism wanted popular sovereignty. They wanted a constitutional government, and they wanted a national parliament. So they're really wanting more rights for the people. They're wanting to get out of the kind of the average person having more rights. Not necessarily the upper class or the nobility or anything like that. They wanted the average individual to have power. So we do see universities becoming more public and more open. Um... And introduced more unity that anybody doesn't matter your wealth or your status or anything like that you can go to you can go to college, so they opened it to anybody. Not they weren't keeping it closed anymore. So we do have an event, the unification of Italy, eighteen sixty to eighteen seventy. So prior to this, Italy was not a country; it was a consolidation, or you could say a confederation of city states. 
um, but then it unified under Giuseppe Garibaldi. So Austria was an individual or an area who had a lot of um, pool in Italy, so it was not happy when they wanted to unify. They really wanted to maintain their provinces of Lombardy and Venetia, and Pope Pius wanted to keep the control of the people. He really much was anti-unification of Italy, even though he was Italian, because he knew that if Italy unified into one nation, that he would lose some power. And then we have Giuseppe Garibaldi. Giuseppe Garibaldi was a revolutionary who led the people to overthrow uh, the city-states and to really unify Italy as one country. Um, And how did Italy unify? Basically, it overthrew the two Sicilies and added Venetia, so took over Venetia from the Austrians and took over the Papal States and came together and unified as one Um, Italy is very interesting to me. I do find a lot of, um, especially during this period, not a lot is happening in Italy besides this at this time. Um, It's kind of like its own thing. So if you ever go and look at Italy in the um, 19th century, late 19th century, it does have some very interesting events that go on that we really don't learn about um, otherwise, um, unless you go and really look into it. Um, And my, my grandfather is from Italy. He was actually adopted after World War II from Italy. So um, it does have a a lot of interest for me. Um, But yeah, Giuseppe Garibaldi is one that is very influential in creating modern-day Italy. While while Italy is unifying, we do have at the same exact time, um, or right before, um, no, at the same exact time, Yeah, at the same exact time as Italy is unifying, Germany is unifying. So the unification of Germany um, was from 1866 to 1871. It was five years. And they wanted to unify all under one ethnic, uh, one religious, one commonality. So they they had common um, ethnic and religious backgrounds. They had the same language. They all spoke German. Um, They had some religious similarities you know some people were catholic some people were lutheran some people were calvinist but for the most part um they had a lot of similarities then we have this individual otto von bismarck so bismarck um was authoritarian he was the chancellor and he was the creator of the german state so germany as we know today is all due to bismarck Bismarck was really the driving force of nationalism in Germany. Wanted to unify the states to create one big Germany. So we do see a war or several wars with Denmark, Austria, and Franco-Prussian. This is just a series of conflicts between these regions in Germany um, that would lead to the formation and unification of the North German Confederation, which would be Germany. Um, After the Franco-Prussian War, which is the war between France and Germany, or Prussia, um, we see the loss of Alsace-Lorraine. Yeah, it's interesting to pronounce. Alsace-Lorraine, that's how you pronounce it. Alsace-Lorraine is a province kind of between Germany and France, and it was gained by the Germans after the Franco-Prussian War, and they keep that until after World War I. And Alsace-Lorraine will then be taken back by the French after World War I as, um, like, reparations for the war. Um, We do see that Japan is also having some issues at this time. So Section 15, the West Challenges Japan, um, 
At this time, power is very limited to specific people. The Emperor has no political power, technically. Um, The Shogun has a lot of power. The Shogun has the most power. He is the secular military leader of the government. And then you have your Daimo. They are the local lords, and they were permitted to control the lands and populations of the regions they had. So really think about feudalism. This is the shift from the feudal era to the modern era in Japan. So this is very much a feudal structure. Emperor was the head, divine, things like that, but he had no real power. You had your shogun, uh, who was your military leader um, of the government. And then you have the daimyo. The daimyo were the local leaders. So... At this time, Japan was very much decentralized with power in multiple places. Um, So this made them weak because they were not able to control their government from one area and be able to spread it that way. There were like too many cooks in the kitchen, you know. So what ended up happening is that in Satsuma and Choshu, um, these two large domains in southern Japan became very, very wealthy. And when you become very, very wealthy, you also become very, very, very ambitious. So we do see that they are wanting to modernize. They're wanting to bring Japan into the forefront. And then we see Mr. Perry come over here. So Perry wanted and demanded for ports to be open to America and to the West. So Commodore Perry came in there and was like, well, you're going to open your your doors. If you don't, we're going to come back and we're going to take them anyway. So it's your choice. You can either choose, you make the choice, or we make the choice is really what he left it up to them. And we do see that Japan capitulates and they say, Okay, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll take your deal, we'll open. Because they did not want to be like China. Remember, China had the Opium Wars, they had the um, Taiping Rebellion, and they basically had to submit, and the Boxer Rebellion, and they basically had to submit to Britain. They did not want to be like Britain, so they were like, okay, fine, we'll do it on our own terms, we'll open. And we see the Treaty of Kanagawa. The Treaty of Kanagawa resulted in the um, underground movement, and we also see the undermining of the government. So the Treaty of Ta- Ta- uh, Treaty of Kanagawa um, was really the sparking point that really caused division. You had people who were nationalists who wanted industrialization, but Japan for Japan. And then you had people who were trying to capitulate and work together with the Westerners. So we do see this underground movement to begin with in Japan. Um, the British and the French do begin to have some conflict in Japan and they start shelling the southwest coast of Japan in protest of how the Japanese are treating foreigners. So even though it's open, the Japanese are still discriminating and in some cases arresting and killing foreigners. Um, so the British are British and French are really, you know, getting back at them. So Satsuma and Choshu, those two ambitious, very wealthy southern domains, decided to join forces and lead a rebellion against the shogunate. So we see that initially they're wanting to further for Japan and do whatever they need to be ambitious. But now we're seeing, hey, this is not going our way. This is not really benefiting us, so we're going to go the opposite. So they start have um, leaning towards nationalism. We're going to go ahead and... End this section with section 16, the Meiji Restoration and Modernization of Japan, and then finish this out on the next section. So, the Meiji Restoration was a period from 1868 to 1894. This is just the modernization of Japan. If you've ever seen the movie, um, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, that like three hour long dang movie, 
this is that period. So who was involved in the Civil War and who won? Well, you have the Provincial Rebels and you have the Tokugawa Shogunate. Um, the one who wins are the rebels. The rebels win. The Tokugawa shogunate is defeated um, towards the end. And we see the reintroduction and empowering of the emperor. And we see the Meiji Restoration. So the Meiji Restoration was a political program that allowed for the destruction of the shogunate and the modernization and industrialization of Japan. Um, what did the oligarchs want for a better Japan? They wanted many things, but the two things, they wanted a very rich country, and they wanted a strong army. So those two things were really the driving force for the rebels behind modernization. Um, They created a chartered oath, and this oath involved them embracing foreign ideas, embracing foreign institutions, and foreign techniques. Japan also at this time improved its educational systems, its military, and its communication systems. So it opened up its education to the West, still maintaining some Eastern ideas, of course, for education, but really opening up and making it modern, making it Western. Um, And military is very much influenced by the United States. So the Japanese will be having many generals and many officers from America come in and help them set up a military. Because remember, the samurai... And he had some warriors. The samurai were the leaders of, of conflict and of battle. But they wanted a more western style of army and military. So they really wanted help from western nations. And then of course their communication systems, the telegraphs and things like that. So Japan modeled their government off of Germany. And modeled their navy off of Britain. Britain has the most advanced, strongest, most powerful, most successful navy in the world or did, had that, all of that. They were amazing. So Japan wanted to be just like Britain. So they wanted that. And they wanted their Germany to be, or their government to be like Germany. Germany was very nationalistic. It was very organized, very orderly. Um, It was a perfect example for Japan. Um, Basically what was introduced as this westernization and modernization occurred were the postal service, uh, railroads, harbors, banks, clocks, Um, It's a really weird thing, but yes, clocks, calendars, and the telegraph. So we do see these Western um, inventions or Western tools or institutions that we use every day um, being being implemented in the East. Um, Students were sent to Britain, Britain, Germany, the United States to study and to learn. Um, Basically, Western secrets. Not not spies, but they're basically learning Western ideas, ideals and ideas and concepts and bringing them back to Japan. Um, We do see educational advancements also in Japan. Um, The founding of four imperial universities for medicine, science, engineering, um, and technology. Daughters at this time, so females were exploited in the new industrial factories. Um, and if you were of the wealthy class or the higher class, you were, of course, um, stayed home doing more domestic roles. You were not allowed to be um, in the public. The only daughters that were allowed to be in public in any way were, of course, those ones that were sold into prostitution um, or into the geisha community. Um, which are like courtesans. Um, then you have Saibatsu, 
Saibatsu are private investigators or conglomerate, or not investigators, sorry, private investors or conglomerates. So these are your new companies. So think of like Carnegie Steel, think about、um, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, things like that. These conglomerates, these investors, these private corporations. Toyota Sachi, Sakichi, Sakichi,、um, Toyota Sakichi was a man, he was a, originally a carpenter. Um, and he created the automatic loom, which was just the fast loom to like, like what it is. A loom is something that weaves.、Um, so he created that and he founded the Toyota Looms Works, Toyota, Toyota with a D in 1906. But surprise, surprise, later on, he will invent the Toyota Motor Company, like the Toyota car we use today. We also see individuals like Mitsubishi. Um, who will create this large steel empire?、Um, originally, Mitsubishi, of course, was just a normal businessman, but then he turns to steel. So, Mitsubishi and Japanese steel、um, is really pushed by Mitsubishi, and Mitsubishi is a major car corporation in Japan today. Toyota, Mitsubishi all started out as private small business owners who saw the opportunity and took the advantage. Okay, moving right along, section 17 nationalism and social Darwinism. So, these two ideas、um, really changed the political climate of Europe、um, for different reasons. We have four ways in which new acceptances are being used or new, new、um, outlets are being used、um, nationally. Newspapers are a huge outlet for spreading nationalism. They are basically publishing stories of overseas conquests, imperialism, conflict, basically sensationalism. So think of your like gossip magazines. Like newspapers are very much used to disseminate information that may not always be true, but could really be propaganda based.、Um, We also see the opening of education of public schools, which is a good thing. Opening of public school systems.、Um, women were now being admitted to public service, they can work in the public. And minorities were being very, very much targeted, negatively um, attacked, um, really um, beaten, sometimes murdered,、um, but were targeted as outsiders, as other. They weren't a part of here.、Um, English was very much expected. If you are an immigrant here, you need to learn English automatically. There's no exception. You need, you're expected to learn English in the United States.、Um, Anti Western ideas are starting to be felt in those Eastern countries, specifically China, specifically Japan.、Um, they are very much having very high anti Western sentiments. They feel that the Western countries are coming in and that they're ruining their traditions and their values and corrupting them. So they're very anti Western there. Um, in Russia, we see the、uh, to Russify or the Russification of peoples, and this is just assimilating the ethnic minorities to Russian culture.、Um, Charles Darwin comes on the scene, British scientist, English scientist,、um, and he studied living beings and really saw the evolution over a period of time and how things change、um, for survival. and 
he says there's two things. He said that either living beings had to evolve or become to become extinct. So you had one or two options. You either evolved, you had the will to survive, or you were the genetic strength to survive, or you became extinct. Extinct. Um, Herbert Spencer came after D- uh, Darwin, and he coined the term natural selection, survival of the fittest, really taking Darwin's ideas and applying them to the hu- humans. So remember, Darwin's ideas are all in animals and kind of talks about human evolution a little bit, but it's really Spencer who brings it to the application of man um, and applies it to human fitness. And this opens the floodgates and opens Pandora's box to racial discrimination, racial um, identification of how races, one race is better than the other or superiority or whatever. It really, it's such an interesting period. This is my favorite period in world history just because of the ridiculousness and how crazy people thought. Um, Eugenics is so interesting. Just like how people believed that oh, based on your head shape, you are more likely to be a prostitute or based on your hand size or because your mother was an alcoholic and your great-great-great-grandmother was an alcoholic, you're going to be an alcoholic or whatever. Like, it's super crazy, um, these different beliefs that people had at this time. So if you do, like, there's a book, oh my gosh, I forget what it's named, um, but it's by a... Italian criminologist or criminal uh, scientist, psychologist, whatever you want to call him. Um, And he's in the 1800s. He writes this book about criminality and he uses his research in human anatomy to be able to define the criminal. I forget what it's called. The criminal, um, the criminal mind, something, 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 I forget what it is, but once I find it, I'll let you know. It's a, it's a, it's really interesting. I read it in college, um, for my, uh, historical science class that I had to take or sciences and history or whatever. But, um, we were talking about phrenology, which is like the, the head, like the studying of the head and how your head and your, your heads or your cranium, cranium's formation. And if you have bumps or lumps or dents or whatever, that tells you what kind of person you are. Oh my gosh, so freaking crazy. Go look up phrenology. Phrenology is ridiculous. It's like pseudoscience. It's stupid science. But phrenology, eugenics, all this stuff comes out at this time. Really classifying people based on their facial structure, their head size, their eye size, their height, their weight, their... Um, facial character it's ridiculous it's so crazy but it's so interesting um so if you like anything about classification or really how people or racism or biological um how people at one thought thought race was biological and um how different races are biologically inferior and all this stuff this is where all these ideas come from so if you have an interest in really seeing why people did this and where their thought process had come from in the 19th century, this is really the period to look at. This is really the period of um, modern racism, social racism, institutionalization of racism right here in this era. So moving on, sorry, I got caught up <laughs> um, with that. But we're moving on to section 18, Germany in the center of Europe. Um, Germany and France oh, had a, had a tumultuous, or had a tumultuous relationship. So the army 
was forged and really had tensions with France for about 20 years. They wanted to isolate France, was Germany's main goal. And they combined with Austria-Hungary and Russia to form a very loose coalition um, in order to isolate France and to bring more um, alliances to them. We also see that Bismarck did have many reforms. He extended the vote to all men. He impro- he imposed high tar- tariffs. Tar- I always want to say tariffs, but tariffs on trade. He created social legislation that inclu- included disability, social security, unemployment assistance. He also included public education, and he wanted to industrialize. So this is that period. Then we see Wilhelm II. So Bismarck was Wilhelm I, Wilhelm II's father, chancellor. Wilhelm II comes into power, and Wilhelm II will be the emperor during World War One, really the instigator of World War One. Um, and he comes to power, and he's all about global policy and a place in the sun for Germany. So we really have to dissect this man's mind. Wilhelm II is very arrogant. He's very narcissistic. He's very self-centered. And he believes he's the best. And he believes Germany is the best. And he believes all these amazing things about himself and about his nation. Um, He's really much trying to make up for his um, physical deformity. He does have a withered arm. um, And he very much is... Um, conscious, self-conscious about that and tries to make up for it by being a big man, you know. So he demands that Germany start a colonial empire and he feels that they deserve recognition. Germany deserves recognition. They deserve a place in the sun. So what ends up happening is he kicks out um, Bismarck, like fires him and starts his, and kind of surrounds himself with yes men and like all this craziness. So moving on to section 19, the conserva- conservative powers, Russia and Austria-Hungary. This is also known as the tinderbox of Europe. So the Austria-Hungarian empire attempted to promote ethnic cultures um, and really saw itself as a great power, dominated the Balkan region, but consolidated its power by taking over the smaller areas of Serbia, Bosnia, um, Slovenia, and Slovakia regions of um, the Balkans of Europe. So Bosnia-Herzegovina comes under the control of Austria-Hungary. This is where we get Sarajevo. This is also the area where Franz Ferdinand is assassinated, Archduke, Austrian Archduke, um, right before World War One. Um, the tinderbox or powder keg of Europe. It's the tensions of this region. So the Balkans, under the control of this imperialistic Austria-Hungarian empire, who comes in, conquers them, forces them to change, really and does try to have ethnic sensitivity, but ultimately fails utterly at that. It isn't until Franz Ferdinand is about to ascend the throne, he's an archduke, he has so many new positive reforms and really wanting to let the people have more uh, autonomy. He is really a reformer. His uncle, the current leader of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, is really oppressive, really like super, super ultra-conservative, um, repression, repression, repression. But Ferdinand is wanting to come in upon his uncle's death and take over and really reform and really listen to the people. So he was very much, if given the opportunity, probably would have been a very great leader. 
But the people were so oppressed and so angered and so upset that the Black Hand would eventually assassinate him and cause World War I. So the tinderbox is just the tensions of the conquered people. Um, Russia, um, in the 1830, the Polish people rebelled. Um, and for, or Russia, sorry, um, conquers Poland in 1830. And the Polish people rebel, rebel in 1863 and 1864. They are, um, that rebellion is squashed by the Russians. But we also see that the Muslims are conquered um, between 1865 and 1881 by the Russians. We also have very anti-Semitic laws and pogroms. So Russia is very anti-Semitic. It was very anti-Semitic. Um, many Jews fleed to the to America, to Western Europe, um, finding a new home, getting out of Russia because pogroms would happen. Pogroms are um, the violent persecution of Jewish people, going out and murdering or slaughtering Jewish people. Pogroms were very deadly and very fatal and very violent to the Jewish population. So they were really trying to escape these pogroms. Alexander II um, failed at many reforms. He did try to do things and better things for the people. Turned serfs into farm workers, but they had little education, no rights. So he abolished serfdom um, but really, they weren't much better off. Um, Alexander III and Nicholas II um, reformed, um, changed. They were very reluctant to reform because Alexander II is assassinated by anarchists. Um, and so his son Alexander, the, that's supposed to say Alexander III and Nicholas II. Alexander III and his grandson Nicholas II are very reluctant to reform. And this is due to that assassination of um Alexander II. Um, the Russo-Japanese War was an utter failure for Russia. Um, they were defeated by a better, well-equipped, well-trained military, and this would cause the Russian Revolution in 1905, not the 1917 one, the first one, the 1905 one. And this is where Nicholas II, the one that ultimately gets killed, um, would be forced to grant a constitution and a parliament. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, probably about like um, 12 years later. He would be forced to abdicate and killed by the Bolsheviks. That's later on. So, section 20, China and turmoil. So, China was not happy with Western rule. And they responded to Western influence by submitting, submission. So, they were forced to submit to British influence after the Opium Wars. Japan responded by not being forced to submit they kind of were like okay we'll work with you we'll capitulate but we're not going to submit like the chinese we'll do it on our terms like they opened and they worked with westerners um and they really wanted to westernize um for the majority the majority and then we have emperor Sizi. emperor Sizi um opposed railways and other foreign technologies i have a problem with this everyone says she was anti-western anti-this anti-that anti-whatever anti-modernization but i just over the summer read a book about empress Sigi, and it very much said she was very pro-westernization very pro-western ideas very favorite 
showed very, very much favoritism towards Westerners and accepted them and really liked them as advisors. So I think this is backwards. So I would personally say that she was pretty much open to Westernization. She really enjoyed the railways, but she understood that many of her advisors and many people in China were not ready for Westernization. So she respected that, but I really think personally she was a Western um, woman, believed in Westernization. Um, chapter, I mean not chapter, section 21, Japan confronts China. We do see new imperialism happening, and this is just the rush to claim the last unclaimed territories. So initial imperialism was when the Western countries came together and imperialized, imperialized Asia, Africa, um, and keeping in their, those larger territories. New imperialism was the last scramble, the last time to gain those last little territories. And who were the new great powers? The United States and Japan. Yamagate Arimoto, Aritimo, sorry, not Arimoto, Aritimo, where was the leader of the Meiji oligarchs, um, and he was really much for Westernization, modernization. Um, he believed that the sphere of influence for Japan was Korea, Manchuria, and China, um, and the belief was that they needed to protect these areas because if these areas were to fall, then Japan would be next. Um, the Sino-Japanese War, that was the war between um, China and Japan. And this would be the evacuation of China from Korea. They Chinese had to secede Taiwan. And the Japanese also um, added the Laodong Peninsula to their territories. The Laodong um was where the U.S. forced them to give up territory. So after the Sino-Japanese War, the U.S. didn't like how imperialistic the Japanese were becoming, so they kind of forced Japan to give up those territories to the Western powers. Um, 90 ports were given to Western powers by China for protection. Um, and the Boxer Rebellion, remember, were when the Chinese were stopped by European, Japanese, and the United States. So the Boxer Rebellion will come on later. It's very much supported by the empress and the government and the person the people who squashed it were the europeans japanese and the u.s manchuria is um the area or region where japan and russia fought over um it was a very rich natural rich mineral region the russo-japanese war 1905 russian loss treaty of portsmouth and in 1910 the japanese annexed korea and would be in control of korea until after world war ii this is the end of chapter 26. We will move on to chapter 27 um, this week as well. So I'll record that some in the next couple days. And I'll see you guys later. Have a good night.